Could we just bow again for a little prayer before I bring you the message? Father, we ask for your help and your grace, for your light and for your illumination. And Lord, we pray that we might be able to speak with authority and truth. And Lord, that our hearts will be touched, that your truth will be revealed, and that we may know a meeting with God. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake and glory. Amen. I know that some time ago, Philip preached through the book of Nehemiah, and I'm not going to try and outdo him with my sermon tonight in any way, but I want to look at a little part of this passage of Scripture that I read to you. You probably know if you were listening to the sermons of the past that uh, the events here are probably recorded by Nehemiah himself. Now, Nehemiah was in exile. He was probably born in exile, And then some men came one day and told him about the tragedy of the city of Jerusalem. The gates were burned with fire and the walls were broken down. And it broke Nehemiah's heart. And in the first chapter of this book, you can read how seriously he took it. And he wept and he mourned and he prayed certain days before the God of heaven. In 540 BC, 50,000 probably of those exiles came back under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And then about 80 years later, others returned under the leadership of Ezra. And then finally, others came under the leadership of Nehemiah. Now, those who came under the leadership of Zerubbabel, they sought to rebuild the temple. And those who came under Ezra, they sought to establish the worship of Jehovah again. And those who came under Nehemiah sought to build the walls that were so badly broken down. And this man had a great vision, and he was given liberty to leave where he was at and come and build the walls. And everything seemed to be going fine until we reached chapter 4. And then we see the opposition rising uh, to uh, oppose him in what he was doing. And I don't know about you, but certainly I think that we face today tremendous opposition in the Christian church. About 20 or 30 years ago, or maybe even less, if someone would have told me that we were going to face this kind of opposition and criticism and uh, almost uh, suggesting that the church today was dangerous and Christianity was dangerous, we wouldn't have believed it. But that's where we are today, where people are questioning the whole idea of Christianity and feeling it's a dangerous thing to believe in God and a dangerous thing to believe what the gospel says. And here's Nehemiah and his friends and the builders, and they're facing tremendous opposition. Now, that opposition consisted of sarcasm. It consisted of hatred, bitterness, indignation, insults, threats, innuendos, criticism, and also trying to diminish what he was doing. But you know, Nehemiah knew God, and that was the most important thing. It says in verse 8, all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem. You know, it's interesting how united the enemy can be in the cause of sin. And sometimes they're more united than we are in the cause of righteousness. You know, Pilate and Herod were at each other's throats until they started to confront Christ, and then they were friends. And here's Nehemiah facing this dark hour and facing the building of these walls, and suddenly these men Sanballat and Tobiah and others came to oppose him. But how did he face this? And that's what I want to speak to you tonight, how to handle opposition and discouragement. 
And I think we learned some lessons here from uh, this passage of Scripture. Uh, the first time I think I preached on this was some years ago at a ruling elders a fellowship in Clock Church uh, on how to face this challenge of, of uh, opposition and discouragement. Well, as we look at this passage of Scripture, the first thing we notice is, is this. They resorted to prayer. They resorted to prayer. Look at verse 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. When he faced this opposition, he resorted to prayer. Now, we tend today to resort to everything, and then prayer comes in at the end. But here's a man who resorted to prayer. I don't know how many of you can remember 2013. You ought to. Uh, I remember it was a terribly bad winter, and the spring wasn't much better. And farmers were facing a real challenge. And one day, Mabel, my wife, she lifted the paper, and she saw where there was, a, there was an ad there telling that there was going to be a day of prayer up in the Ross Park Hotel. Farmers were coming together to pray that God would do something for them in their time of need. And we thought, why don't we join them? And we went up to the Ross Park. And I have to tell you, friends, it was one of the best prayer days I've been at for a long time. Men were desperate. Men were anxious that God would do something. They had no grass for the animals. They had no food for the animals. I can still see a young man that I knew. He farmed way out there about the airport direction, and he got up to pray, and he said the tears were flowing down his cheeks, and he said, Lord, I stood in the silo this morning, and I haven't a blade of anything to give to them. Do something for us. I don't know whether you remember, but I tell you, friend, it was one of the best summers we've had for a long, long time. God answered those prayers. They were broken prayers. They were serious prayers. And they resorted to prayer. And God didn't fail them. We had one of the finest summers that one could remember. You see, God is the one who answers prayer. And here's Nehemiah. He resorted to prayer. Oh, he could have tried a lot of other strategies, but he, he resorted to prayer when he was facing this opposition. And you know, it's time, I believe, that the Christian church resort more and more to prayer. You know, Joseph Scriven got it spot on when he wrote his great hymn. He said, have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. But you know, we're so slow to do that. We think of so many other things. Should we not organize this? Can we not organize that? Folks, we need to take it to the Lord in prayer. E.M. Bounds was one of the greatest writers on the subject of prayer, and in one of his books, he says this, to give prayer a secondary place is to make God secondary in our affairs. And they resorted to prayer. We need to do that, folks. If you have been here on a Sunday morning, you've heard Philip stand in this pulpit and plead with you to come to the prayer meeting, plead with you to come to the place of prayer, and that's what we need to do, folks. And even in the quiet place at home, we need to be praying much more. C.H. Spurgeon is known as the Prince of Preachers. And one Sunday, he was coming to the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, where he preached to thousands of people each Sunday. And he noticed that the 
up at the front doors of the, of the tabernacle, there were four young men standing. The doors were still closed. The church wasn't open. And Spurgeon, of course, went up to see them, and he discovered that there were four young, man, young men studying in the city of London. And as he used to say, they were studying divinity. And he said to them, why are you here? Oh, they said, we're here studying, and we've taken, we're taking the opportunity of hearing the great preachers of London and we've come to hear C.H. Spurgeon. They didn't know him, of course, but it was Spurgeon himself. And Spurgeon said this to them. He said, while you're waiting, let me show you our furnace. Oh, they said, we're not really interested in your heating system. Ah, but he said, I want you to see the furnace. And he took him down the big stone steps at the side of the Metropolitan Tabernacle into the basement. And he opened two big oak doors. And there on that Sunday night were 700 people praying before thousands would gather in the sanctuary upstairs to hear Spurgeon preach. Is it any wonder that Spurgeon says, my people pray for me? My people pray for me. And here they are resorting to prayer. Folks, I would make an appeal to you tonight, and I'm not the minister of the church. Oh, get back to prayer. That's what's going to solve our problems and bring about a change, and it has done so before. We think of the four young men that prayed in the old schoolhouse down the road there in 1857. Pray that God will send days of awakening to this province. Did God fail them? No, he didn't. God poured out his spirit and sent the great 59 revival. But they not only resorted to prayer, the second thing I notice here is this, they remember the Lord. Look at chapter 4 again in verse 14. Be not afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Great and awesome. Sometimes I wonder today if we're not suffering from an absentee God in many places. Sometimes in the Old Testament, God was absent from them. But they were to remember the Lord. And Nehemiah says to remember two things about the Lord. Remember his greatness. Folks, we have a great God. But sadly, the way we live would give the impression that he's anything but great. We have a great God. Nehemiah has mentioned this already in chapter 1 and verse 5 the great and awesome God that keepeth covenant. And the idea of the greatness of God sometimes eludes us. Remember his greatness. John Calvin once said, there is power in God to lay prostrate the whole world and to tread it under his feet whenever it may please him. That's how great God is. The Bible says, if God be for us, who can be against us? But listen, friend, if God's against us, who can be for us? And you know, we will never need more than our God can supply. He's a great God. Remember his greatness. Oh, men and women, it might be worthwhile taking a little time out from our busy lives from time to time to get alone with God and just ask God to show you his greatness. Some years ago, there was a little 
Chinese man came to this country and preached. Some of you may have read his books. His name was Watchman Nee. And Watchman Nee made this statement on one occasion. He said this, Oh, that we might learn the undefeatedness of God. Oh, that we might learn the undefeatedness of God. Many things are great to us today, but God, many things. Friend, how can you convince the world of God's greatness if we are not convinced about that greatness? How are we going to convince men and women in our neighborhood of the greatness of God if we have no concept of that greatness? Remember our God. Samuel Davis was the president of Princeton University. He followed Jonathan Edwards, who was one of the first ones, and he wrote a great hymn. And in that hymn are these words, Great God of wonders, all thy ways are matchless, childlike, or godlike rather, and divine, but the fair glories of his grace, more godlike and unrivaled shine. You know, way back in the summer of 1886, at a place called Kronbach in Sweden, a man called Charles Boberg and a few other men were going to a stately home on an estate to a meeting where ladies gathered to sew for the benefit of missions. That's how it's described. They're making things to send to missionaries. It was a beautiful day. The sun was bright, and just as they approached the house, they could hear a roll of thunder, and the sky became dark, and things closed in, and suddenly torrential rain began to fall. And then shortly it was over, and the sun was out again. And across the little bay opposite that stately home, there was a little church, and the bell was ringing. A funeral was going into that church, and the men went to the meeting, and Carl Boberg that evening went home. And the memory of this was still in his mind, the thunder, the storm, the rain, the sun. And he wrote one of the most powerful hymns that ever has been written. O oh Lord my God, when I an awesome wonder, consider all the works thy hand hath made. I see the stars, I hear the mighty thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art! How great thou art! Oh, says Nehemiah, remember the Lord. Remember his greatness. But secondly, he says, remember his awesomeness. Remember the Lord, which is great and awesome. Friend, not only is God great, but he's awesome. Victor Hugo was a distinguished French poet and novelist. And in one of his novels, he writes this, I did not study God. I was dazzled by him. I did not study God. I was dazzled by him. I can remember as a boy growing up and going to primary school, being taught the shorter catechism. Didn't teach it in the church, but we taught, they taught us it at school, and then the minister came and he would ask us questions about it. And you know, I've never forgotten that question, who or what is God? God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. 
What a God. What a God. He's awesome. Awesome. You've probably seen these ads for McDonald's Big Mac. Awesome. Friend, there's nothing awesome about a Big Mac, but there's something awesome about God. Nehemiah says that's the God we're to remember, a God who's not only great, but a God who's awesome. Derek Swan was a Welshman. He was the minister of Ashford Congregational Church in Middlesex for many years. And he wrote an article in a magazine some years ago, a little magazine called Contemporary Concern. And this is what he wrote. Oh, for a breed of preachers who are not so much dazzled by their congregations, but are, are themselves dazzled by God. God alone should absorb our attention. Then our congregations will be absorbed by him. Everything in the service should confront us with God. The test of our music is, does it enthrone him? The sermon, too, should lead to worship. It is not a lecture it is, or an address, not something to sit back and enjoy or criticize, but a living stream that sweeps us into the presence of God. And then listen to this. It leaves us breathless with joy and wonder. I wonder when last we were left breathless with joy and wonder as we thought about the awesomeness of our God, an awesome God. What a God we have. This is how Nehemiah faced opposition and discouragement. He resorted to prayer, but he remembered the Lord. I think it was Martin Luther who said to Erasmus on one occasion, he said, your thoughts of God are too human. I wonder, is that where we're at today? Our thoughts of God are too human. We brought God down to the same level as ourselves. And maybe like Erasmus, our thoughts of God are too human, too human resorted to prayer. They remembered the Lord. But there's another thing I noticed they did. They resisted the enemy. Look at verse 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. Verse 14 says, be not afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Folks, we are facing a number of enemies today. We've got atheism, secularism, humanism, you name the isms, we've got it. And these are threatening the cause of the kingdom of God. And we're to resist the enemy. Of course, there's Satan himself. You know, it's a very sad thing when sometimes you read of people who claim to be Christians and they don't believe in Satan. They don't believe in the enemy. I think it was D.L. Moody, the evangelist, said that he believed there was a God because the Bible said so. there was a devil because the Bible said so and that he had done business with him. And you know, if you're a real serious contender for the faith, friend, you will know that there's an enemy. You will know that there's a, a, a devil that we've got to resist from day to day. And the Scripture tells us again and again that we're to resist Satan. We're to resist him steadfast in the faith. Dr. Oswald Sanders wrote a book some years ago, and the title of it was Satan No Myth. 
and he refers to Satan, and this is what he writes. It is his fixed purpose to annihilate the church and neutralize its witness. And that's what the enemy's trying to do today, trying to annihilate the church and neutralize its witness. So we need to resist the enemy. Stafford Wright was a, an Anglican missionary, and he wrote a book some years ago, Christianity and the Occult. And this is what he says, according to Scripture, the primary aim of Satan is to organize a world system from which God is excluded. That's what we're presented with today, trying to organize a system where God is excluded. We don't need God anymore. I was traveling in the car one day, and I had the radio on, and I heard a man say this. Oh, he says, the supremacy of man has meant the redundancy of God. We've got to resist the enemy. That's how Nehemiah did it. He resisted the enemy. But you know, there, there are many other things that we can find as enemies, and we need to be very careful that we resist them as well. So they resorted to prayer. They remembered the Lord. They resisted the enemy. And then the fourth thing I notice here is this. They returned to the work. It says in verse 15 of chapter 4, and it came to pass when our enemies heard uh, that it was known to us and God had brought to not their counsel that we returned all of us to the wall, everyone unto his work, resorting to prayer, remembering the Lord, resisting the enemy, but returning to the work. As soon as it was possible, Nehemiah and his men returned to the work. I wonder tonight, am I speaking to somebody here in Connor? I've been coming here for probably 14 years now, and uh, many of you I still don't know. I don't know where you're at spiritually. When did you once love God? When did you love Him with all your heart and all your soul? Maybe you've wandered and you've drifted and God isn't real. Maybe God's saying to you, look, return to the work. Maybe you had a task to do in this church. Maybe you had something that you once did, and maybe a Sunday school teacher, or maybe something else. I don't know. Would you quit? I wonder, is God saying to you, get back to the work? Get back to the work. See, Ed Spurgeon has a lovely comment in this, and I think it's wonderful. He says, they lost no time on holidays or congratulations. They were in earnest and they kept to the business. Is there somebody here tonight and you need to return to the work? You need to say, God, I let you down. Lord, I quit when I shouldn't have quit. Lord, I want to return to the work. Following the collapse of France in those dark days of World War II, Sir Winston Churchill addressed the commons on the 18th of June, 1940. Referring to Hitler, this is what he said, if we stand up to him, all Europe will be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States of America, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age 
made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and Commonwealth lasts for a thousand years, men will say, this was our finest hour. Let me say this, folks. I believe if every child of God tonight in this province got back to where we used to be, got back to what God asked us to do, it might be our finest hour in Ulster. It resorted to prayer. Let's get back to prayer. They remember the Lord, his greatness and his awesomeness. They resisted the enemy. And they returned to the work. But there's one other thing I want to leave with you before I finish tonight. I have far too many pages of notes here and I'm going through them. The other thing they did here was this. They rallied together. Rallied together. Look at verse 20. In what place, therefore, you, you hear the sound of the trumpet resort, you thither unto us, our God shall fight for us. Do we need to rally together today? You know, there's no place I can see in the cause of God's kingdom for isolationism. I believe it's God's plan that we rally together. Now, I'm certainly not an advocate of the ecumenical movement by any stretch of the imagination, but I feel that the people of God should sometimes rally together in the cause of God's kingdom. You know, united we stand and divided we fall, and we need to rally together. It's a great tragedy that we're so divided, you know, as God's people. It's a great tragedy that we're so split and fragmented. It's such a pity that we're squabbling and fighting sometimes about things that are of no significance when God is longing for us to rally together for the cause of his kingdom. Nehemiah's men hadn't done that. The whole plan would have been a disaster. A disaster. May God help us to rally together. May God help us to feel each other's burden and pray through to God that God will move and God will work in a mighty way. This is how Nehemiah faced the challenge, faced the opposition, faced all the innuendos and sarcasm and everything that was going with their challenge. And that's how we'll face the very same thing in our day and our age. We need to resort again to prayer. We'll need once again, friend, to remember the Lord, his greatness and his awesomeness, resist the enemy, return to the work, and rally together. Douglas MacArthur II was a nephew of the famous World War uh, General MacArthur, World War II General MacArthur. He served in the State Department when John Foster Dooley's was Secretary of State. One evening, John Foster Dooley's phoned MacArthur's home. His wife didn't know who he was, didn't recognize his voice. And he asked, could I speak to MacArthur? Oh, she says, he's not here. 
And she was obviously upset, and she said, MacArthur, you'll get him where he always is. You'll get him where he is Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. You'll get him in the office. He's never left it. She was quite angry. She didn't know it was a secretary of state. And as soon as he went off the phone, he lifted the phone, and he phoned MacArthur at his office. And he said, MacArthur, go home, boy. Your home front's crumbling. Go home, boy. Your home front's crumbling. I maybe sound a bit pessimistic tonight, but I'm not really. Friend, our home front is crumbling spiritually. And I believe God is challenging us to rally together that we might see the cause of God's kingdom extended again and periods of blessing in our land and God pouring out His Spirit and men and women coming to Christ and the church being revived and revived and, and quickened and restored. And God alone can do that. How did Nehemiah face this? Let me remind you again, at the risk of repeating myself, the resort to prayer. Oh, friend, get to prayer. Go to prayer. You know, a while ago, I was reading the life story of John Fletcher of Maidley. He was the vicar of Maidley. He was the man whom somebody asked Voltaire, the French skeptic, if he'd ever seen anything that would make him believe in God. And Voltaire said, yes, go to the vicarage at Maidley. The vicarage at Maidley. And in reading the life story of John Fletcher, now I'm not saying this is for everybody. Please don't misunderstand me. But John Fletcher stayed up two full nights every week to pray. Is it any wonder Voltaire said, go to the vicarage at Maidley? I was preaching in England a wee while ago, and I mentioned this, and I got a letter after I came home. I have it somewhere if I had thought I would have brought it with me, from a man to say that he'd visited the vicarage at Maidley. And he was in the room where where. Uh, John Fletcher prayed, and he said there was actually a stain in the wall where that man knelt to pray and see God. Folks, that's real praying. That's real praying. Now, I'm not saying that's for everybody. Probably with the pressure of our generation, we couldn't stick that sort of thing. But here, they, they resorted to prayer. They remember the Lord. The Lord's great and He's awesome. They resisted the enemy, and they returned to the work, and they rallied together. And maybe God's asking you to return to the work and rally together. Let's pray.